Triathlon Show 249. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Drs. Kush Joshi and Joel McKay. Dr. Joshi is a sports and exercise medicine practitioner and consultant, and Dr. McKay practices and consults in hematology. Uh, they join us today to discuss blood testing and biomarkers important for triathletes and endurance athletes in general. Before we get into this interview, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration. And today, episode 249 marks a 200 Monday episodes ago. Back in episode 49 uh, is the first time that Andy Blow, founder of Precision Hydration, was on the podcast for the first time to discuss electrolytes, hydration, performance, and cramping, to name a few subjects we discussed. And a few months after that, Precision Hydration started sponsoring that triathlon show and have done so ever since. So I'll take this 200 episode milestone to thank Andy and thank Precision Hydration, uh, everybody that I've been working with, uh, Dave, Chris, and so on, for all the support to the podcast over the years, and uh, not to forget for keeping myself hydrated with the Precision Hydration 1500, which is the high sodium version of their electrolyte products that you can match to how you sweat. You can do that by taking a free sweat test on the website precisionhydration.com. And then you can use the promo code thattriathlonshow15 to get 15% off your order. And um, if you are choosing electrolyte uh, products for training and racing, uh, it would be really important that you consider using Precision Hydration, first of all, because it's a fantastic product that you can actually choose the type of strength that you need to match how you sweat. But also then you, of course, help support the podcast indirectly. And thank you so much to our other sponsor, Roka. And I want to talk a little bit about why I like Roka so much. Uh, it is really, it comes down to the fact that they use a combination of really, really big innovations, like for example, the arms up technology in their wetsuits, and combine that with really maximizing uh, the attention to, to small details and getting them just perfect. Like, for example, the greater lens angle on their swim goggles so that you can sight with a slightly lower lift of your head. The combination of these two, the focus on big innovations and small details, really makes the product as excellent as they are. And that is why I really love Roka and Roka's products. This approach is evident not only in the products I just men mentioned, the wetsuits and the goggles, but uh, in the prescription glasses, in tri-suits and many, many more. So go and check them out on roca.com and uh, you can get a 20% discount code on roca.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Kush Joshi and Dr. Joel McKay. Welcome to that triathlon show, Joel and Kush. It's a great to have you. Can you both introduce yourselves to the audience and what you do and, and your background? And uh, we can maybe start with Joel, then go Kush. And uh, yeah, uh, go go ahead and uh, talk a little bit about yourselves. Thanks, Mikhail, for having us. Um, my name is Joel. I'm a hematology doctor currently working in London. 
doing my specialty registrar training in the Northwest. Um, and hematology essentially is the, the specialty of blood disorders um, and everything that affects the blood and bone marrow. Um, and I also work with Melio Health as a doctor and health advisor for them. And Kush, what about you? Thanks. Um, so my name is Kush Joshi. I'm a, a sports and exercise medicine consultant, um, partly working in the NHS and also doing some work for Melio. So in the NHS, I'm based in Oxford, um, where I spend two to three days a week uh, working with uh, patients who are weekend warriors um, and then also working around preventive health strategies for inpatients to promote physical activity. With Melio, the idea um, would be to provide personalized packages uh, for people who want to improve their health through exercise and other remits. Um, so th that's how I know Joel as well. Yeah, so so in that role with uh, Melio, it, we're talking about a sort of consumer uh, blood testing or test panel. And uh, let's start with that as it pertains to endurance athletes, uh, what is the relevance of uh, of doing that sort of testing panel that that Melio and other companies uh, globally, depending on where you are, uh, offer? So, from my perspective, you're happy for me to jump in here, Joel. I, sure, I think with uh, weekend warriors, with athletes, um, what we know is obviously minor changes in one's physiology um, with, or biochemical markers can have a, an impact on how someone performs. Um, and I guess related to everyone who's listening at the moment, everyone's looking for that 1% gain. And the idea with getting blood tests for endurance athletes would be to see where are those small biochemical uh, abnormalities or discrepancies where someone can improve themselves. So the one that obviously jumps out for me is vitamin D always, which is something that I see a lot in my practice, but at the tail end of things, when someone's had a stress fracture. Um, so that's where I see it. And obviously I think we, we can go through all the individual blood markers um, today to see the relevance of each one. But as a, as from a global perspective, I think there are a number of things that can be found in blood tests, which can be improved on. Joel, anything you want to, to fill in on that uh, just at this point where we're giving an, a global overview of, uh, of just a, yeah, the blood testing as a whole without going too deep into any individual blood marker? Sure. And I think because you touched on vitamin D, which we can talk about in a lot more detail later. But I think the other really important thing, I think, for, for blood testing for athletes and consumer-based blood testing is the sort of availability of more data, better decision-making based on that data, as well as tracking progress through time um, and looking at research possibilities from you know, your biochemical level and, and the performance it gives you. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good point Joel just makes her as well. Um, I mean, if you actually look at all the available evidence, there's really nothing in the way of a lot of longitudinal studies. Um, any studies at the moment, you know, they look at six months, 12 months in terms of variations of any of the blood tests, but we don't really know what happens in a long-term perspective. And then in terms of blood results at the moment, whenever you get a blood result and you're compared to the reference range in terms of the normative values, that usually is a, a sentry slash, you know, mod, maybe moderately active uh, individual as opposed to endurance athletes. So I think certainly what Joel says is very important with regards to getting more data to see how training loads can um, affect an individual. 
Yeah, from from an athlete's and coach's perspective, personally, the way that I see, because I do try to uh, get testing done, even if sometimes it only ends up being yearly. Uh, my goal is to do it at least twice yearly, and that's something I want to discuss actually later, what the recommendation would be. But uh, either way, what, what I would... Uh, my my gut feeling of how to use it would be that it would be great to get sort of your own individual baseline values for the most important blood markers at a point in the season when perhaps you've uh, come off your off season and you've just started training and you've been training for a couple of weeks so you're not uh, completely uh, sedentary at that point but also you haven't had any opportunity to overtrain yet which i think happens to a lot of athletes so basically you're getting a baseline value where you are in a relatively fresh and fresh state and uh, you don't have any issues and then if some sort of issues in your training performance decrements or fatigue come up later then you have those reference values from early in the season when everything was going smoothly and uh, you can compare and see if actually you might be able to find uh, the reason for performance decrements and so on in those blood values. So that would be uh, an, one thing that I would see it from just a coach's and athlete's perspective as, as useful. I, I think you put it very beautifully there. That that's exactly where I see it as well. Having a, a baseline, baseline result um, when, as you say, you, you, one isn't training as intensively, kind of the rest period. Um, the, where I personally would see it, and obviously a lot of this is determined by financial costs. You know, we, we know in a lot of healthcare um, sectors, from a public perspective, people will normally go to their GPs and will only be allowed blood tests if they're unwell. Um, and this is where the preventative health side of things comes in. Um, but when you are ramping up your training, let's say you've got a big competition coming up, that would, in an ideal world, be where I would see someone get a blood test again to make sure that there aren't huge abnormalities or if you're feeling overtrained, as you say as well. Um, because if you've got the your, your baseline figures initially, you, you can therefore just determine, is my fatigue, for example, uh, related to a specific parameter in my blood results? Mm. So, so actually, let's discuss the practicalities there. You mentioned that normally you would have to see your GP and actually have a reason, be ill in some way to, to get a... Uh, prescribed uh, some sort of testing but the way you work i presume although i don't know uh, is that you as a consumer can directly order the testing somehow and is it then a self-administered test that you send the results in or how does that work and what are the regulations around uh, the preventive medicine as you call it sure do you mind if i jump in first kush yeah, yeah please um i think that there's there's a, a definite culture in the in the UK, especially, of um, not really taking your health into your own hands and and not bothering a GP for a blood test for your own curiosity or if you have some minor symptoms. Um, the, the analogy I use is if your car had a warning light on but was still running fine, would you ignore the problem until your car breaks down? Equally, if your car hadn't broken down, or had broken down, sorry, but there was no warning lights on, would you not investigate that? And I think... The way that Melio offers that kind of way of, of testing and and looking at your own biochemical analysis is that it's a, it's a test you order online. Um, we have some clinics around London and other parts of the UK, which you can have your blood drawn. Um, and then 
the results will be sent to Kushrai, and we will then look at all of the the markers uh, and give you a sort of step by step analysis of each marker, as well as a more global statement. So we can look at normally about forty five to fifty tests and say this is your liver function and this shows your liver function is fine or this is your kidney function or, or where my concern is is that the full blood count um, being a hematologist. Um, and there are lots and lots of markers which we know have large variation based on your diet, your exercise um, that may flag up as abnormal in inverted commas but may just be signs that you're either experiencing overtraining or you have a high level of stress or there's seasonal variation um, especially with things like vitamin D um, and our goal is to is to kind of track those subtle variations um, and see if, if improving them actually gives you much better outcomes in your training so you're actually working with you're, you're looking at the tests uh, in person it's uh, manual work for for the two of you it's not just uh, looking at some reference ranges because that's what i'm used to i go to a private uh, chain of labor- laboratories here in lisbon and which is great but it also leaves uh, all the I, i can choose whatever blood markers i want to assess but then it's also the interpretation is sort of up to me and i have the luxury of having doctors for parents so if i need any help i do get some help for for that but but if i just look at the reference values uh, especially i had one side needed to investigate my iron levels when i experienced some fatigue and and i actually needed to do a lot of research on what are the actual reference iron levels for athletes because i found that they didn't at all match up with what the reference values indicated in the test report was so are those the kinds of things that you can do seeing as you look at the test results individually you uh, you basically uh, you you don't just give the what does this mean in terms of the average person but in terms of the context of the person taking the test if they're an experienced endurance athlete you can say that well actually this is probably normal for you even though it would fell outside of a normal reference range Yeah. So, um, Sorry, Kush, go ahead, go ahead. No, no. Um, so we, we want to make it, as you say, uh, Michael, um, as personalized as possible. Um, so this is an evolving process. Melio's, uh, you know, a relatively new company. Um, but, uh, you know, as we discussed the blood biomarkers, you know, for example, with testosterone, we know that there's not only is there a variation through the day with testosterone, but there's also variations depending where you are in your, in your, um, in your training. And so if we have that information, as opposed to just giving you a generic answer, or, you know, what typically may happen with endurance athletes, your testosterone is a bit low, actually your testosterone may be a bit low, but you're really peaking your training at the moment. And that's maybe just a normal finding for you. The other part of it then also, as we uh, discussed earlier, is if you've got your baseline, you can determine how significant that is as well. So it's it, it just try, try and make it as personalized as and individualized as possible for for the consumer as opposed to just a generic report and that's where joel and i come in with the medical reporting which is something people won't get if they just go to a laboratory was there mm. anything else you wanted to add, it, add to that joel i think that's that's the key isn't it personalization and i think it's it's very handy as you say michael having um parents as doctors and and you yourself can do the research but For someone who wants to, to focus more on the, the training aspect rather than crunching the numbers, um, they get a very personalized report. They fill out a health questionnaire beforehand explaining their dietary requirements, the type of exercise they're doing, you know, whether it's 
hit strength based or conditioning. And I think you can you can really develop your own personalized programs um, with a, a report that comes from either Kush or I. And again, is is something that not a lot of labs are offering right now. Mm. Yeah, that, that's really cool, and that's something that I I didn't realize that that's what you actually offer with uh, with Melio the the personalization and uh, it's the old adage of context is king and and you have the context and can take the context into account so that makes it more powerful than just a normal uh, laboratory test. But uh, let's dig into some of the most important uh, and common blood markers for endurance athletes and and discuss what uh, which which ones should we test and why what might be the implication of low and high values in different different biomarkers and even things like what are the most important ones what's the hierarchy of of these markers if you can only choose to test a few based on for example budget uh, but um, yeah let's let's start with uh, well uh, perhaps you can could you might start us off and, and just mention a couple of the most important ones from from your end so, so joel and i are probably going to disagree uh, with each other a hematologist and sports next has men going to have different uh, uh thoughts on this for me uh i vitamin d i think it's critically important um it is it's one of those vitamins even though it's a it's technically a steroid um which we're we're learning about so much more we're putting more and more emphasis jury is out in many ways but i would certainly put vitamin d near the top if you wouldn't if you don't disagree joel with with a full blood count and iron deficiency and things like that you know either a joint first or somewhere around there good good diplomatic save there kush i would actually um in respect to endurance athletes i would agree vitamin d and i think Actually, a lot of underlying process that, that I think are important as a hematologist for athletes um, are, are pretty much driven by vitamin D anyway. So I would, I would agree that vitamin D is probably one of the, the in fact, is the most important, I would say. Because you mentioned stress factors potentially showing up as a downstream effect of low vitamin D. Uh, what, so that's something that, well, maybe you want to dig a bit deeper into that. But also, what are the other potential effects of vitamin D? I've read about fatigue, general fatigue and uh, performance decrements and very, very general, uh, I guess, consequences of it. So what, what's the actual lay down on, on that? Yeah. So, so with, re- with regards to stress fractures, in terms of my practice and my colleagues who work in sports and exercise medicine, we, we as you see, uh, as you said, sorry, we're, we're downstream of the implications of low vitamin D. Um, you know, it, depending on what studies, uh, you look at, some studies quote up to 50 to 60 percent of athletes have inadequate vitamin d um and in the general population that's even worse um uh, w- one of the studies actually shows that when a stress well in terms of population of uh, young men who get stress fractures they're three to four times more likely to have inadequate levels of vitamin d as well so it's, it's quite important um with regards to the other question what else is it important for so uh, there is some evidence to show it's associated with innate immune response. So there, there was a paper a few years ago which showed um, lower levels of vitamin D uh, increases one's risk of getting upper respiratory tract infection. Um, other things which are important are around muscle repair and remodeling. Um, so there, there's a paper which suggests that it has a positive effect on recovery with eccentric loading exercises. Um, and it, around that muscle uh, development, uh, it's very key in terms of remodeling, especially when 
you've got higher loads of training. And so this is where a lot of research has been orientated in terms of what's the optimal dose of vitamin D and where should your your biomarker be to ensure that you're getting the best response from the vitamin um, when you're exercising. So those are the main ones. Would you add anything else to that, Joel? I think I agree when you, when you say about the, the use of immune regulation and that there's been actually quite a large, although it's not related to the general population of athletes, there's been a large study by the MS Society um, in the role of vitamin D in T-cell activation. T-cell is one of the big players in immune regulation and is important in things like anti-inflammatory properties. Um, and there's been a few studies showing that, you know, low vitamin D increases the risk of inflammatory and autoimmune disorders. And therefore, when you apply that to the exercise and athlete setting as well, it's, it's going to have a large impact on rest and recovery, really, for muscle inflammation and remodeling. Yeah, and, and I know that uh, the IOC consensus statement on supplementation in endurance athletes, uh, vitamin D was one of the few recommended supplements uh, they they had in their uh, statement for the reason of uh, better immune, immune function and reduced risk of, uh, I think, specifically upper respiratory tract infection. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good one. And then, then you mentioned, uh, so the blood count, full blood count and, uh, iron as uh, a couple of other top ones. Joel, do you want to start us off with these ones? Sure. So following on from the, what Kusha said about vitamin D, um, a study in, in athletes performing high intensity training that showed that vitamin, lower levels of vitamin D actually impacted on their iron regulation, metabolism and erythropoiesis. So, uh, that production of red cells, um, and that lower levels of vitamin D athletes had worse blood cell production and therefore worse outcomes um, and couldn't train for as long. I think the, the other really key thing, which there's a lot of new research coming out at the moment, especially in patients with sickle cell disease, which is, pro- is, which is actually going to be applicable to, to athletes, is the role of ERFE, which is erythrone. Um, that's a chemical which, following uh, higher levels of EPO, erythrone will actually uh, reduce. Uh, and this hormone is responsible for reducing uh, a chemical called herceptin, um, sorry, hepcidin, sorry, uh, which is responsible for regulating an increase in iron absorption in the gut. So the theory is, is that increased levels of, of EPO following training at, at altitude will improve your hemoglobin concentration and content by further increasing your, your iron absorption through the gut, which is really, really interesting at the moment. I find that's super interesting. I didn't know that either. That's very interesting. Yeah, uh, and Kush, anything anything you want to to mention here in, as it pertains to uh, to iron uh, and uh, and full blood count? I mean, we, we know that um, athletes' requirement generally is higher with regards to iron um, for for some of the reasons uh, that Joel's mentioned. And apologies if I repeat anything he said. Um, you know, there are things like. That there are losses from the GI and urinary tract, um, which is on a microscopic level. So, you know, it's not something that, you know, the individual would see. Um, there's foot strike hemolysis as well. So fit, foot strike hemolysis is whenever people are running, that impact is meant to uh, break down red blood cells. So that effectively reduces your effective uh, circulating volume of hemoglobin. Um, we know, generally speaking, athletes have a higher use of anti-inflammatory drugs, and this will affect one's uh, full blood count as well. Um, and then very finally, um, exercise-induced inflammation. I, I know that kind of brings in ferritin, which might rise mm. associated with that, but that may also 
require athletes to have a slightly level, a higher level of, of iron, um, which which will actually be lower in the blood test. But in terms of how much they need to consume, they will need higher amounts. Um, That's interesting, Kush, because this this study with erythroin has actually shown that in in sickle cell patients, um, their level of of iron is actually higher, falsely high, um, and I think it's similar to in in athletes there. The levels of ferritin are much higher because of inflammation, but the they think the erythroin is that might now be driving that also. Oh wow! Okay, I mean we we haven't even uh, mentioned uh, you know we're we're talking quite generically, but mm. and we haven't even really mentioned women in this as mm. well, um, where you know in, in terms of menses, a woman may lose one milligram a day um, during that time, and if a if a female has heavy heavy menstruation they, that blood loss can be five to six times higher um, and there was a study um, that showed that one in three athletes uh, it's speculated are affected by this so you're talking about quite significant uh, iron loss in that time period um, which again would require higher iron consumption to consolidate that how prevalent would you say that uh, uh, inadequate iron uh, is in endurance athletes so i i I wouldn't be able to say. I, I think that there are lots of studies. Um, I, I don't know if Joel, you know this, but um, it's one of those things. That, so there's lots of snapshots, and this this really goes back to what we're talking about. There's no massive longitudinal studies, and whenever you have studies, especially in athletes, there's such small cohorts. As you know, um, you know you'll be hard pushed to find studies which are more than thirty, forty people. The biggest studies usually I found um, usually come from army recruits. Um, uh, where you get slightly bigger cohorts, but then you, it could be anything up to 40 to 50%. But it's also important to differentiate, um, and Joel, correct me if I'm wrong, um, iron deficiency non-anemia and iron deficiency anemia, um, because one would treat iron deficiency anemia, and there is definitely evidence that treating this will have beneficial uh, effects for the athlete, whereas the benefits of giving someone iron in iron deficiency non-anemia um i is not having an impact on the actual hemoglobin itself um that's quite equivocal in terms of the evidence okay so the definition of anemia being that the the low iron has an actual impact on hemoglobin is that correct correct yes okay i should, I should defer to the hematologist is that is that fair definition joe what on what on <laughs> right so so if you uh but can you, and that you and that you can infer through also um, measuring the hemoglobin in uh, concentration in in your red blood cells. Is that is that correct? So you can from a blood panel you can uh, you can infer whether you have iron deficiency anemia or just iron deficiency without the anemia. Exactly, and there's and it's 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 something that I mean, being a, a massive nerd, I find very fascinating, and it's something that over you know you can really look at two cohorts of tests your iron panel, which would include your, your ferritin, your transferrin, um, your transferrin saturase, um, and your total iron in your blood. And, and you can, because, you know, most of the population have sufficient iron stores. So you can be iron deficient without being iron deficient with anemia for a number of months. Um, and I think that's really important, especially when, as Kush was talking about, women with menses who are athletes as well, who we know might have micro losses of ferritin, they could quite quickly become more iron deficient and therefore more quickly iron deficient anemic with than the general population. So that's where I think blood testing and uh, tracking these, these, these variations is very important. 
And what is the role of ferritin in this? In, in terms of iron deficiency anemia? Yeah. So your, your ferritin is kind of, I had this explained to me when I was a lot younger by a consultant colleague of mine who referred to the ferritin is a bit like your savings account and it is your, your iron stores in your blood. Um, and it's the component that once that is deplete means that you no longer have sufficient stores to produce hemoglobin, which is the oxygen carrying uh, component of the red blood cell. Um, and the stores become so deficient that you can't meet the, the, the demands to uh, produce enough hemoglobin to carry oxygen to the body. And that then leads to symptoms of lethargy, uh, can cause depression in severe cases, shortness of breath, um, and then sort of cold circulation. So if we have low iron, uh, but but okay ferritin, then for now we are generally okay. But the other way around is more severe because then you run the risk of pretty soon you will have insufficient hemoglobin. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, the low iron concentration in the blood is a bit like your current account. So if you have a low blood iron level, but normal ferritin, um, you can re- replace that from your, your ferritin stores. But as you say, Mikhail, vice versa, uh, run into problems quite quickly. Mm, yeah. All right. And and if you have uh, any, if you basically find that that your iron is inadequate, is the solution then generally to make sure that you get in more iron uh, for your food? And how would you suggest doing that? When would supplementation be recommended uh, and so on? I think if, if I was seeing someone in clinic and I, I was talking about iron deficiency, it's, it's really important to work out what the, the driving factor is for the deficiency um, and, and also the level of deficiency. So my, my first goal is if someone is, is largely asymptomatic or the symptoms aren't troubling their quality of life too much, my, my first treatment modality would always be diet um but that isn't often achievable um but we would you know there's there's lots of high iron content in green leafy vegetables red meats legumes so my first protocol would always be that but if someone was sufficiently iron deficient that they were having severe symptoms impacting their quality of life and they became anemic as well you would start with with supplementation and there's lots of different supplements largely oral um, but they can be quite toxic on the gut and some people develop quite problematic gi side effects from those one way around that is having it really it sounds pretty simple but orange juice has a high amount of vitamin c ascorbic acid we know ascorbic acid actually helps gi absorption of iron reduces gi side effects but if i think if we still run into problems then um we, we have resistant iron deficient anemia to oral supplementation there are lots of other new iron preparations that we can deliver intravenously um, which is is generally a two-course treatment over two weeks and and patients find that they they feel much much better after those Mm. and and is there something to uh, what i've heard about avoiding coffee around food uh, if you want to increase your iron your actual absorption of the iron that you're getting in for your food i I think that was i mean i think that the rationale behind that is again because of the, the the effect coffee has on the, the GI tract and it would either increase clearance, uh, therefore reducing your amount of absorption. And it would also exacerbate those, those quite nasty and discomforting GI side effects from the tablets. All right. So, so it doesn't really apply necessarily. Well, or does, does it 
does it then not really apply if you're uh, if you're at the the first uh, line of treatment, which would be just to try to increase your iron through food through diet? Oh yeah, I don't think it would necessarily apply. No. All right, all right. So let's uh, move down the list. And what what are some other uh, interesting blood markers for endurance athletes that uh, that you would uh, put on the list uh, after these ones that we already talked about, Kush? I mean, what are in relation to iron deficiency? Um, th- there is so if one has iron deficiency, there are greater risk of hypothyroidism as well. Um, because so thyroid peroxidase, so that's one of the enzymes which is responsible for conversion of T4 to T3, um, uses iron as a cofactor. So if you've got iron deficiency, that can impact that. So, I mean, we can talk about thyroid function as that kind of leads into that quite nicely. Yep, yep, let's, uh, let's go for it. Um, so, you know, as most people may know, uh, thyroid is obviously really important in terms of it regulates all the body's metabolism. Um, when it pertains to an endurance athlete, a lot of the uh, effects that one might see in their blood results will, are more likely to be a knock-on effect of, let's say, something like overtraining, um, being uh, calorie deficient. Um, but again, it's one of those things. So certainly when an individual may feel like that they have overtraining, um, the purpose of getting a, a blood panel would be to see, am I actually truly overtrained if I've been periodizing my training, etc.? Or am I, in fact, uh, showing signs or symptoms of something like hypothyroidism? Um, and this is, again, leads back to what we were talking about earlier, having that baseline. Um, what we know um, is there is a slightly increased preponderance for individuals who are endurance athletes to be kind of on a subclinical hypothyroidism. So their markers may demonstrate uh, a, a hypothyroid picture which means um, their T3, T4 might be slightly lower and the TSH is slightly higher, um, but they're not actually demonstrating signs or symptoms. And if you're already in that range and you have blood tests, without having a a previous baseline, there's always a concern that you start overlooking at that um, and not other things which may be going on, if that makes sense. Yeah, it it does. It does. Uh, So, but, but if somebody is in that situation... What would they recommend? You you go and get your test, and you come back with low T forty three or high TSH. Then what is the takeaway? If you if you are you have some sort of symptoms, some some sort of fatigue, let's say, or underperformance in training, and you don't quite know what the reason is, it could be overtraining, or it could be that you actually have uh, hypothyroidism. Would you then uh, prescribe thyroid supplement, uh, thyroid, uh, some sort of supplementation? to to treat that hypothyroidism so i personally wouldn't i'd probably uh discuss it with an endocrinology uh, colleague if i'm honest um what i would suggest is if there's you know based on the clinical history and things like that it very much just depends what the picture is in terms of what the training load is like and i think this is something really important that um certainly occurs from an elite perspective but if anyone's really aspiring to be you know uh competing quite regularly is to have a training diary to actually see how much you're doing um, and whether that fatigue has coincided in any way with uh, the blood test results you've got because if you're just very much borderline i, I wouldn't jump in personally giving thyroxine or anything like that i'd repeat it three to six months down the line after 
appropriate nutrition um, has been maintained, appropriate rest has been given, um, as well as reducing someone's uh, exercise load as well. Um, And only at that point, if despite all those things, then you still have a kind of subclinical hypothyroid picture or the the picture looks like it's becoming more and more hypothyroid, then you'd obviously think otherwise. Yeah. Joel, anything to add to that? I think I completely agree, Kush. I think the training diary sounds essential for for people that are having subclinical hypothyroidism. Equally, when I did an endocrinology job, we would ask patients who had subclinical hypothyroidism to keep food diaries and sleep diaries about the quality of their sleep. Um, and I think, you know, following these people up and seeing if symptoms are getting worse is really key to see if the treatment needs to be implemented or not. Mm. The, the other I, th- I think w- I want to jump back a bit uh, with yeah. both uh, this with hypothyroidism and uh, iron deficiency anemia as in particular. Uh, I think we kind of uh, we did sort of touch on, on it, but maybe we brushed over it a bit too quickly with the actual symptoms. What, what would be the symptoms for both of these? Uh, these syndromes that you would expect to see potentially? So in, in respect to, to iron deficiency anemia, a lot of people will will start off with symptoms of um, cold intolerance. Uh, they'll feel lethargic. They might say that either their partner or friends have commented that their, their mood, their affect is, is low. Um, and people in, in severe cases will have shortness of breath. They might even develop chest pain. Um, and 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 some people will put that down to thinking, oh, I just have a viral illness, um, especially when it's, it's in the winter months. But it, it has been shown in some studies that the sort of first hit for, for iron deficiency or even the second hit, which is the straw that breaks the camel's back, can be something like a viral illness, which leads to these plethora of symptoms. Um, and, and in terms of, of hypothyroidism, subclinical hypothyroidism, um, People experience similar symptoms of hypothyroidism, but they, they may also experience things like weight gain or, or hair loss or feeling that their heart rate is slow. Um, so those are the, 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 the key kind of players we look for when we're talking about those two disorders. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Should, should we, is there anything else about uh, hypothyroidism or do you have any other uh, markers that you want to add to this list? I mean, the only other thing, I mean, I'm always going to go back to my stress fracture thing. Um, so again, with hypothyroidism, we know that it also lowers one's bone uh, mineral density as well. So in some studies, up to by 40%. So again, with a picture of hypothyroidism, there's a risk of stress fracture. So typically what we would do in clinic is we'd always test for one's um, thyroid panel um, because we just know there is an associated risk with stress fractures as well. Um, because what we know is uh, the thyroid hormones stimulate osteoblast activity. So osteoblasts are the bone cells which are responsible for the form- mineralization and formation of bones. Um, so when you have lower levels, obviously, that process is no longer occurring. And so that's why you're at increased risk of getting a stress fracture. Right. Perfect. And uh, yeah, so what what else should we add? I have a couple of things on my list that uh, might or might not belong here, but uh, vitamin B12 is one, uh, sex hormones like testosterone, uh, potentially cortisol. Uh, would any of those be important markers to look at or any others that you can think of? I mean, I had an interesting uh, study that I, I saw on vitamin B12 levels and that actually... Uh, vitamin B12 is really important in, again, red cell manufacturing, uh, as well as nerve impulse and muscle repair. Um, but the poor or marginal 
borderline B12 status actually impacted on mature athletes who were doing endurance training and high intensity training. And, and those who had poorer marginal levels had much poorer results and, and, and training um, regimes. And there was a very, very interesting study. It was actually done in, in, in mouse models rather than humans, but it was that there was two groups of, of mice, one exposed to high intensity training. So more anaerobic training and one exposed to aerobic training. Um, and those who performed aerobic training actually had lower folate levels and increased plasma and plasma vitamin B12 levels sort of suggesting that should we be supplementing folate if we're doing long-term endurance aerobic activity. The, the other thing I'll just add in with B12 whilst we're on it um, is, is certainly something we ask in, in, in the clinic that I work in um, is if someone's vegetarian or not, because we know B12 typically is found in animal products such as fish, poultry, eggs, um, etc. So uh, vegetarians are more likely to be B12 deficient. And so that's something um, one should always look out for, especially with all the things that Joel says around um, production of red blood cells, etc. Yeah. Uh, would, uh, the, would supplementation be the way to go there or can it be found in plant-based products as well if you, assuming you get enough of those plant-based products? So I know that some uh, breakfast cereals are fortified with B12. Um, typically what would happen is you'd normally end up giving supplementation in some shape or form. Um, but there, there are lots of people who do manage to find it, but then you just need excess quantities of whatever you're eating. Um, so for example, I, I mean, the main thing I know is fortified cereals. I don't know if there's anything else you know, Joel, which also has lots of B12 in it. I think what, what you've said, Kush, is, is pretty spot on and that even when people do try to supplement it with dietary intake, it, it has to be in such large volumes if they're, if they're already deficient that it becomes an impossible task, really, and that generally supplementation is, is the, the way forward for, for treating B12 deficiency. Mm -hmm. I mean, I say vegetarians, obviously. I mean, if vegetarians eat eggs, that's a good way of getting B12. But then, obviously, especially with a lot of people nowadays becoming vegan, I think there, there is an increased risk of that B12 deficiency. And that really, at that point, you need supplementation. Yeah, yeah. What about, what about fish? Uh, do you get uh, vitamin B12 from fish? Because a lot of people might eat fish, but not poultry or red meat. I would say yes. I don't know the exact amount, but I know things like salmon uh can tuna are good um sources of b12 so you, you can I, i think you probably can get more from uh, a bit of salmon than from eggs as well i think um with regards to b12 i think i think there's i was i was reading a study the other day and i think there people were supplemented with um with salmon and oily fish and i think per 100 grams is about three nanograms of vitamin b12 which is pretty good And I think your number one things, if people are so like it, is uh, things like liver and clams mm. are a very, very good source of B12. Right. And uh, beyond that, uh, so testosterone, for example, uh, is, would that be one of the important blood yeah. markers as well? No, absolutely. I think testosterone's obviously got a lot of interest from lots of people all the time. Um, so, um, you know, it's obviously an anabolic steroid it promotes muscle growth it inhibits protein degradation so it's really critical when people are training so that they can promote muscle growth um, and then they don't go into too much of a catabolic state um, catabolic being when someone has that muscle degradation uh, state which basically is essentially what cortisol does so they almost act in synergy um, so 
with regards to the actions of testosterone, so one of the key things that I do certainly in cl clinic is if we've got a, a, a male who's got a stress fracture, we again test for testosterone because it's really important for bone health. Um, it increases one's osteoblast activity. So as we uh, talked about earlier, osteoblasts are responsible for laying down a bone, but it also decreases osteoclast activity, which is almost the opposite of osteoblasts. So osteoclasts break down bone. Um, so what we know is if someone has a reduction in testosterone, that would impact someone's bone health. And then again, uh, increase one's risk of getting a stress fracture. Yeah. Uh, and uh, would the reference values though here be different for endurance athletes than the general population? Is that something that, uh, that athletes that should consider that they might have lower testosterone than, than the, the general population? I, I think that's a really super, super important point, Miguel. Um, I, as you know, um, with your blood tests that you've had, so we know that endurance athletes are normally on the lower end of normal um, in terms of their reference ranges. So what we normally get in the normative values don't really apply with regards to testosterone. Um, and again, this feeds back into what we, we talked about right at the beginning, having a baseline, because if you feel that you're overtraining, feel you're fatigued, and then you get a one-off testosterone and it shows that you're just below, uh, the normative values or the reference values are given, that might mean nothing at all because that just might be you. Um, and so that's really a really, really important point. Um, yeah. And this is where we, we just, just as an extra point to that, this is where all the studies really are lacking at the moment because there are no large-scale longitudinal studies. With any of these things, if someone's been an endurance athlete for many, many years, we know that the sequelae of poor, uh, well, uh, sequelae of biochemical disorders takes years and years and years to develop. So having just a one-off blood test at one specific point may not be sufficient to diagnose what's going on. Mm. And another question on testosterone, is it equally important for female athletes as it is for males? So I wouldn't say it's equally as important. Estrogen or estradiol is more important in that remit, but testosterone has you know, lots of really good benefits for, for women as well. It's important in increasing lean mass and strength. It's again important in bone density as well, less so than uh, estrogen, uh, important in well-being. So you wouldn't, I, I personally wouldn't test it routinely um but it is important less so than uh the female hormones okay so you would test estrogen primarily for yeah. for females yeah yeah and and what can we discuss around estrogen then how in, in addition to what you already said so i i guess the, the estrogen typically is tested for in issues around fertility and things like that i mean it's not something that i would routinely do um the, the key differentiator, I guess, in terms of what we see in my clinic is if uh, a woman has any issues with regards to um, energy uh, deficiency, they will have issues with their menses. So they may have amenorrhea, so a cessation of periods, or they'll ha have irregular periods. So that would be a precursor to suggest that there is already something uh, wrong with the with the estrogen or in, in terms of the entire hypothalamic uh, pituitary axis i.e uh, the hormones that are getting secreted from the hypothalamus which affect the pituitary and then produce estrogen and progesterone so in men that obviously doesn't happen um, and so when we, we do see a female and we know that they aren't having periods you you know at that point actually the estrogen is already impacted and it's about bringing them back from 
whatever physical activity they're doing, improving their caloric um, intake, etc. So they, they, you know, they, there's a clear telltale sign um, with women that there is an issue with estrogen. All right. Are there any other blood markers that we should discuss that you would consider very important for endurance athletes, or have we done a good job of covering off the, the main ones? I, I mean, I think we've done the main ones. There's always loads and loads. I mean, we could, there's things like cortisol. There's, um, to a lesser extent, sex hormone binding globulin as well. Um, my, my personal opinion on cortisol as having a snapshot, it doesn't really add a lot. We know that um, cortisol obviously increases with increased amounts of exercise. It's a, it's a stress hormone and it's important when someone's doing lots and lots of exercise that the correct energy sources are being utilized. I guess the significance and the importance with regards to a lot of things we read out um, you know, on the internet, things like that, are that uh, you, you have that chronically elevated cortisol with lots and lots of exercise, but whether uh, suppressed cortisol is suggestive of all overtraining syndrome. Um, I, I think it's something that you find in overtraining syndrome, but it's certainly not diagnostic or anything like that. So one of, I, I think it is important, again, and it just comes back to this longitudinal thing, if you've got cortisols at lots of different time points, but by itself, um, if you're just purely looking at it by itself, I don't know how helpful it can always be. Yeah. Joel, do you have any, any blood markers that you want to, to add or uh, discuss still? I was going to ask, actually, Kush, have you seen um, with things like triglycerides and HbA1c for relation to glycosylation, uh, any variations and impacts, as you said, in, in things like overtrain syndrome with, with those two markers? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I thought you were going to mention the HbA1c and in terms of increased prevalence of pre-diabetes and diabetes with endurance athletes. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I know this can be sometimes a bit of a controversial issue with regards to because people are carbohydrate loading. Mm. Um, is there an increased risk of getting diabetes? I, you know, I, I think a lot of studies to a certain extent have demonstrated that, but it's one of those things which is uh, half and half. I think there just needs to be a lot more research on this area um, because we we do know, generally speaking, endurance athletes obviously are taking in large amounts of fuel sources, which typically come in the form of carbohydrates, and that can elevate one's insulin and may have long term impacts on uh, sugar control. So I, I can't say that I've personally seen in my practice that there's any correlation with overtraining and uh, correlates to HbA1c, and there may be. Um, uh, articles out there which suggest that but i i certainly am not aware of that um i guess it, it it has some controversy around it whether people who are uh quite high level endurance athletes and doing lots and lots of training because of their high amount of carbohydrate consumption they're at risk of getting pre-diabetes and subsequently diabetes um i think it's a very interesting topic and i think it's something that needs a lot more research into um but that's where my thoughts would be around that I, I and i know specifically we're talking around blood tests for endurance athletes but i think all those things around cholesterol hba1c that they are important because you know what, what what is the ultimate aim for a lot of people when they are exercise regularly is just to make sure they're fit and healthy and to have a knowledge of those parameters just means that you're doing the right thing i would say yeah, that, that's a good point. Uh, I think it's even if a long 
the the journey along the career of endurance athletes maybe goals change we start to become competitive and uh, want to win races and stuff but but actually for probably a large majority of people the reason we get into endurance sports is um, has to do something something with health and uh, and that doesn't really go away even though other goals come up alongside that goal of being healthy so so i think that that's a, a great point to bring up and uh, let's uh, let's move on now from discussing specific uh, biomarkers uh, but uh, just uh, if you want to well actually if you want to list a few that seem to be popular and perhaps hyped up in media or on the internet and so on but that you don't really think are relevant for endurance athletes at least are, are there any and what would those be in that case Joel do you want to start us off if you have any yeah so I mean, I, I just thinking. I can't see the, the benefits really of of things like albumin and and things like uh, liver function because I'm assuming that you know because she can help me with this. But most most endurance athletes are their albumins are going to be raised anyway because of the amount of protein supplementation they're taking. Um, and and from a from a normal population point of view, that would be if you saw a raised albumin draw you to think of sort of underlying inflammatory disorders or uh, underlying hematological disorders. But I think things like raised albumin and, and variations in albumin and liver function, I think, would probably fall under the uh, the natural variation for, for endurance athletes. And so I don't think there's really much relevance to that, really. So, so the only place, uh, and I, I don't disagree with you at all, Joe, and I think this is a very small subset of uh, individuals. So liver function can be quite useful um, as an adjunct to creatinine kinase sometimes. Now, again, a, a one-off creatinine kinase would mean very little um, because we, you know, there, there are genetic variations, there's ethnic variations in terms of how much muscle mass someone has with creatinine kinase. But what we do know, and I say this from my own experience as well because I've actually had it previously, mm. is um, when you get rhabdomyolysis, so that's uh, a massive breakdown of your muscles, um, and a release of creatinine kinase, which is one of the enzymes within the muscles, you can sometimes see an elevation of your liver function as well. Now, I mean, when, when I had my episode, um, the the overall significance wa- of it perhaps was nothing at all. I mean, I just knew that my liver functions were elevated. Mm. So I, 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 I agree with you, Joe. I, I don't think that it has a massive amount of significance. But sometimes if there are specific reasons you want to get this blood test, uh, let's say creatinine kinase let's say if you really have something which is far worse than doms in your in your eyes and you want to get a blood test done i would include liver function at that point yeah right and uh if we can discuss a little bit around uh, how to use testing in uh, blood testing in practice let's start with just the uh, the typical uh amateur athlete uh, so they have uh, they they train a lot. They train consistently for triathletes anyway. That's the general the case. But they're not professionals. They have a job and they have a family and so on. And uh, yeah, their their main job isn't to to win races and be like the the absolute fittest they can possibly be. Uh, what and they also probably have some time res- uh, constraints and and budgetary constraints as well on how how often they can and it makes sense to to do some testing. What would you say would be a good sort of starting point for how often and when to to do test and and what kind of testing would you do? Like how many of these markers might be uh, might should they do? Because I assume that that's something that you can 
you can maybe choose a little bit and and change the cost of the test depending on how much you actually test how many markers you choose to have so so for me um i, I would certainly if you're in that kind of off season period or um your, your training levels haven't ramped up i i think it's always worthwhile to get a baseline test and I, I think it is always important to remember for individuals with regards to monetary issues and things like that. But the way I always see this is, you know, we, we spend lots of money on various things, you know, in terms of the amount of money that people spend in a month on coffee or whatever else it might be. But actually just being a little bit more in charge of health, not only necessarily um, from a perspective of improving your, your times and whatever else, but just knowing where, where your health is so you can have um, actions which you can take forward it, it doesn't cost a massive amount and so having that baseline is a good start um, thereafter I guess it's individual preference if you have one big competition a year and you feel like you just want to see where you are you can probably um, if you've got training diaries and things like that guesstimate what your blood tests are like elsewhere if you only want to do blood tests a couple of times a year I, I think that would be a reasonable place to start um, what, what do you think Joel? I think it's a really good point. And I think, I think what you say about individuals spending lots of money on lots of things, you know, the cost of these tests now aren't astronomical. Um, and if you're only doing them once or twice a year are actually very good value for, for taking charge of your health and, and maybe, maybe understanding a bit more why you're feeling lethargic at this time of the year. Or, oh, you know, you can put this down to my vitamin D level, for example. Um, and knowing that maybe half the year you want to supplement that. Because it, in recent studies, about 20 to even 60% of people in, in mainland Europe and Northern Europe uh, show some degree of vitamin D deficiency as well as B12 or folate deficiency. So I think financially, um, it's it's not too strenuous. And that, and that actually, it might, might also motivate people more knowing that they, you know, I've, I've done my bloods and this marker has shown that I'm, I'm either a little bit you know, deficient of something or, or my triglycerides a little bit high, my HbA1c is a little bit high, I'm going to modify my diet and training regime to, to try and improve my results. I mean, the one thing I'd add into that is it's just always benefit cost. Mm. Yes, it might cost you a little bit of money initially, um, but in terms of long-term ramifications, you know, if someone unfortunately does become unwell or, you know, they become diabetic or something like that, the amount of time that is can be spent in GB practices, seeing your doctor, mm. um, getting medications, etc. You know that that is a time cost as well. Um, and what we know is, with a lot of uh, medical conditions, uh, you can start seeing it quite early on in your blood tests, and you can put those actions in quite early on. So just to prevent those endless visits uh, to a doctor. Um, and so this this is certainly something that really got me interested in working with Melio is that preventative health aspect. You, you, you can, from an early stage, know what's going on with your health and you can put in actions to be as healthy as possible. Yeah, and, and that's an aspect that, depending on where you are in the world, like, for example, in the US, the system is very different to in the UK or in uh, Scandinavia, for example. So uh, there, in, in addition to saving a whole lot of time on those GP visits, you're probably saving a fortune as well. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, that's a, a great point that you bring up there. Uh, on on in another scenario, if you are a professional athlete and your goal is to win races, win medals at world championships, and so on, and uh, I think that because you have worked with uh, with, for example, with Premier League football clubs with Chelsea, I believe. Uh, what, but what would what would you recommend for 
an, a professional athlete, a world-class athlete, what, what would the ideal be for them if they have the, the time, they have the means and the, the willingness to, to do testing uh, as often as is required, as is deemed beneficial? What, what would the frequency be then? I think with, with someone like that, I think it just depends. And I think every athlete is going to be always a little bit different different in terms of football players, be different to endurance athletes, etc. Um, I think part of it would be, let's say, so if you're a, a tennis player, hypothetically, and you've got, um, you know, obviously right now it's you can't do this, but if you're having to go to the Australian Open, then you go to US Open, you know, to acclimatize to a different heat, to a different temperature, that might be slightly different to someone else from an elite perspective. So you might require blood tests when you get out there just to see have there been any changes in your biochemistry. Um, that that isn't necessarily acted out. And again, it's really around data. We don't have enough data to suggest what kind of small variations in blood markers may affect someone's performance. Um, but I would certainly suggest that in terms of within, let, let's say you're just UK-based, um, and if you're an, an outdoor athlete, the kind of things around vitamin D are less important. But we know then from October till about March, April, you will have uh, lower sun exposure and so you're more likely to become deficient so you might want to have a, a blood test say in the summer um, where it's maybe a bit hotter as well your plasma volume might be a bit lower um, as well as the winter where you may ha have an increased chance of reduced vitamin d so th this is really where the personalization comes in um, each individual is going to have unique circumstances um, when they get blood tests done um, i also think that it from a Elite perspective, they they typically, you know, an elite athlete may get blood test done two, three, two to three times a year, but they're just a broad remit of almost everything, um, and then they go into a lot more specifics. And it again works really well with the training diary as well, just to see if there's any drops in one's performance. That you know, you've got the blood test there. Is there anything going on there? Do we need to change anything? Do we need to supplement anything or anything like that? Yeah, yeah, that's a great overview. Uh, Joel, do you want to add anything to that? I think I, I'll, I'll leave that to, to Kush, the expert. He's the, the expert in sports medicine, medicine, but I would completely agree with, with that. And I think that the, the cost effectiveness and, as you say, reward uh, is, is very important. Right, perfect. Uh, then I know that in the uh, in the, the list of questions that we have here, we have a few questions that I haven't asked you. I do feel that we actually did a good job of covering them. Things like how uh, training, rest and recovery, nutrition, and so on might have an impact on uh, on different markers, uh, basically. And uh, so, but if they, so, so I'm not going to ask them specifically, but just leave an open ended question. Is there anything you want to discuss around either training load, rest and recovery, sleep, or nutrition as it pertains to these uh, blood markers and, and that you feel is very important to point out still before we start to wrap up this interview? I think, as you say, we've, we've covered most, most of it, Mikhail, but I think that the most important thing for me is, is knowing at a standpoint in time where you are biochemically and, and how that matches up to uh, how you're feeling in your training personally and the results you're achieving. And I think that the added benefit now of being able to, with a company like Melio, have a report that's very digestible and very easy to interpret and track um, is only going to give us more data, more more power and more knowledge. Um, and as Kush said, there's very limited studies, longitudinal studies in large cohort populations of athletes. And I think using um, 
people like us at Nelio is, is a real benefit, I think, to, to individualizing and improving your training programs. Chris, anything you want to add to that? Um, I think we, we hopefully covered most of it. Uh, with regards to specific around rest, nutrition, it depends what one's aspirations are. Uh, I always, with regards to endurance athletes, and if you're, you're striving um, to, you know, beat your last time or, you know, win a, a Ironman or wherever it might be, um, all those facets are very, very important. Yes, training is critically important, but that rest, recovery, um, getting the adequate nutrition, make sure, make sure you're calorie, not calorie def deficit, um, ensures that you, you can perform as well as possible. And I, I think where the, the blood testing comes in is an adjunct to that, to make sure that are you doing the right things and on a longitudinal basis, because remember age also comes into this as we get older, testosterone also can drop, vitamin D can drop. We make it as personalized as possible to you as you, as you go through the years. Perfect. So let's wrap up this interview with the rapid fire questions and you each uh, get to answer these, but it, they are one sentence answers. So rapid fire and we can do each of them as uh, Joel starts and then Kush goes next. The first question is, what's your favorite book, blog or resource? So my favorite book uh, is by an author called Sid Mukherjee. He wrote The Emperor of All Maladies and the book is called The Gene and it focused on the building blocks of life and I think it's a great read for uh, your everyday person looking to read a bit more about our genetics. And Kush? I'm going to be very non-medical about this. I, I really, I've just finished, uh, well, a couple of months ago reading Heroes and Mythos by Stephen Fry. <laughs> If anyone hasn't read that, it's a very fantastic good. book. Right. <laughs> it's going to be very non-medical, sorry. Perfect. No, it's uh, good. Uh, it's uh, summertime and uh, sometimes spent at the beach. So, so some nonfiction would be great. <laughs> yeah. And uh, next, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success, Joel? Again, mine's going to be quite non-medical here. Uh, I'm a big Liverpool fan. So my, my, my personal habit is I always think, uh, what would the Liverpool football team do in this scenario? Or what would Jurgen Klopp do in this scenario? So that, that always motivates me. So your success is quite recent then. <laughs> In the last weeks. <laughs> Kush, what about you? I, I would say routine. I mean, in terms of selling my morning routine, I, I wake up pretty much the same time every morning, about 5.36. I always do my exercise first in the morning um, and it just sets me up for the rest of the day. So it just makes me feel good that, you know, I've achieved these couple of things. Um, sometimes I don't do anything for the rest of the day, which isn't great, but that, that's generally the idea that it just, you know, preps me up for the rest of the working day. And finally, what do you wish you had known or done differently at some point in your career? Joel? I think getting involved in research earlier, I think I would say to anyone who's either medical, non-medical, whatever you do, I think being involved in research drives better practice, better evidence base, and think that's cool. And Kish. I, I think that's a really good point, Joel. I mean, for me, I, I I'm sitting here doing what I what I love. Um, you know, every day is a unique challenge for me. So I, I wouldn't say I've got any regrets about anything or I would do anything differently because I think any mistakes or anything that happens or anyone you don't enjoy working with just makes you develop as a person. So um, I'm happy with where I am. Perfect. 
And finally, uh, where can listeners follow you, uh, whether it's uh, your personal websites, social media, or uh, websites where to where you work, Milio or others, uh, any, anything you want to mention, uh, feel free to, to do so here. Joel, let's start with you. If anyone needs to uh, to contact me, my my email is joel.mckay at nhs.net. Um, and my, my Twitter handle as well is uh, at j underscore mac underscore 90. Um, we, we've also got uh, our, our Melio uh, podcast, which is what does good, uh, what does good feel like. Um, and that can be found on your, your, your podcast provider. Um, Great. And Kush. Uh, so my Twitter is at Dr. Kush Joshi. Um, in terms of my email address is kush.joshi1 at nhs.net. Um, you know, in terms of your listeners, it would be great to hear feedback and what people's thoughts are as well. Um, you know, we, we want to improve our service and how athletes feel like, you know, things can be done to improve their, uh, you know, their, their experience and journey with all yeah. these things. So, you know, be, any feedback would be welcome. And Milio as a service is when will that be available in the UK? Is it already available, or what is the the status of that? So it's in process. Yeah. Um, so we we've got. I think Joel mentioned this earlier on. So that there's a couple of laboratory locations in London, um, and we're going to start getting the uh, the full blood panel, as it were, uh, relatively soon. Um, so you know, it, it's weeks as opposed to months. So it'll be quite a, a uh, something that's going to be coming relatively soon yeah yeah so by the time listeners hear this it might be very very imminent because you this episode will be released uh maybe four weeks five weeks even from when we record so sure. uh so yeah yeah it's probably just we'll put a link to the website in in the show notes and people can go and check out what the status is but uh, thank you so much to both of you thank you joel thank you kush for taking the time it was uh, really interesting to to have you on and talk about uh, about this topic it's something i've never done on this podcast before so and i think it's about time that we we did an episode like this so uh, thank you very much pleasure thank you so much for having us thank you, Kyle. appreciate it i hope that you enjoyed that interview and learned a lot one thing that uh, I realized that might not have been very clear from the interview that I want to clarify about this episode is that Kush and Joel were guests in their roles as general domain experts and not representing any company. But as you heard, they do work with a company that's uh, from the, the roles from which they know each other. Uh, I believe at least uh, that company is called uh, Milio and it is UK based. So if you are in the UK, you can look it up and I will link to that website in the show notes, which you can find as always on scientifictriathlon.com. And while you're there, if you are looking for training plans or coaching services, you can find all the information about that on the website as well. If you like this podcast, then I think you'll absolutely love both uh, coaching or training plans or whatever is right for you. On Thursday, we have another Q&A episode coming out as usual. And then next Monday, I interview Theon Van Erp, who is a PhD sports scientist formerly of Team Sunweb on the world tour cycling uh, circuit and we discuss a lot about his phd research which, in which includes the work done on training load and uh, one interesting outcome of his work is a little bit of clarity around the pros and cons around different training load metrics including the very popular training stress score tss 
We also discuss uh, a lot about the training strategies used by World Tour cyclists based on on Tone's time at Team Sunweb. So that's an exciting one. Stay tuned for that and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss it. Finally, thank you to our sponsors. First, Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy for training and racing and get 15% off your order of electrolyte products with the promo code that triathlon show one five and thank you to roca that you can find on roca.com go and check out their wetsuits tri suits swimskins goggles and high performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20 percent off your order with the discount code that you can get on roca.com forward slash tts thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving triathlons